You know those words at the middle of that song we just sang together? And when on earth I breathe no more, the prayer oft mixed with tears before, I'll sing upon that joyful shore. You know, that's what we're here to do this morning in many ways, is to remind each other of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if you're a Christian, you're here this morning, this is a time to be refueled and renewed in that hope. That hope in Christ, that regardless, we have people here this morning from various situations, various circumstances. We have people here this morning who are very, very happy feeling and who are very sad feeling. And for all the people of God, there's this message of hope. And then if you're not a Christian this morning, you are in the right place to find hope. And that place is not this, this building, but it's with the people of God on the Lord's Day. As we gather together in light of the resurrection on this special first day of the week and worship our Lord together. This is a time of hope and therefore it is a time of joy. You know, in the New Testament, hope and joy are always linked. How do we have joy through hope? Joy that's not rooted in hope is fleeting. But when it's in the hope of the resurrection, it stands. I'm sure that, well, I'm not sure that uh, many of you would remember the first sermon that we had here at Madras quite a while ago. It was July 1st, 2018, a little over a year ago. Some of you hate to be reminded of that, but the first sermon we had here in this building And it was on the genealogy of Cain, of course, a genealogy. It was on the genealogy of Cain, and it was at the end of chapter 4 of Genesis. And now, we, as we come to what appears to be our last service, or what will be our last service here in Madras, we get another Cain-like story. That's what we have here today. So it's kind of like our parentheses here for this time in Madras. We had Cain at the beginning, and now we have a very Cain-like story here at the end. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis 37 for our text for today. We, uh, we preach texts, uh, not ideas or topics or themes. We preach texts. Uh, I remember I did a, a graduation speech recently for a homeschool co-op, and one of the things I, I told the, uh, the students as I got up to speak was, uh, I've, I'm a preacher, so I've come to you today with a text. And then I told them, I said, beware of preachers who do not come to you with a text. And so I hope they will remember that as they go off to college and find a church. But we come to a text today, and our text is Genesis 37, verses 12 to 36. And this is a very well-known story, a story that you have probably read. I mean, even if you, have, uh, you, you came to Christ late in life, or maybe even if you, if you don't know the Lord, you did not grow up in church, this is probably a story that you have at least vaguely heard of. If I'm, I'm not mistaken, Ben Affleck uh, did the voice for Joseph. I forget the name of the, of the cartoon movie, but this has been made into a cartoon movie, the story of Joseph. But this particular text, verses 12 to 36 from chapter 37, is the well-known story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. 
And I just want to read to you a couple of uh, comments from some commentaries on this. Alan Ross writes, It is the Cain and Abel story all over again. Taking us back, as I said before, to Genesis 4. And then another commentator, Kenneth Matthews, says, The brothers are the horrid Cains of the Jacob family. We have a Cain and Abel type of story here. Last week we saw how much Joseph was hated by his brothers. That was the focus. The sermon title for last week was Hatred in the, in the Household. And what we saw there was Joseph who was uh, hated by all of his other brothers. Now, of course, he has one brother named Benjamin who is presumably quite small at this point. But all of the other brothers hate this one brother, Joseph. All these sons of Jacob hate Joseph. And there's two reasons, as we saw last week, why the brothers hate Joseph so much. The first of those is because he was his father's favorite. And it wasn't one of those things where there was sort of a nuance in the air where they could just kind of sense it, that uh, daddy loved Joseph more. It wasn't, it wasn't just kind of a light nuance in the air. It was very obvious. And, and the symbol of that favoritism of course, was that multicolored or ornamented or long-sleeved. It just depends on how we understand the Hebrew word there. But that coat, that, that robe that was given to Joseph by his father, Jacob. A symbol, unabashedly, of his father's favoritism of this one son. So that's the first reason they hate him. But as we read last week, as we go through the text, they hate him. They hate him even more. They hate him even more. It just grows and grows and grows. And we learn that what causes this mounting hatred as we move through those first 11 verses of this chapter is more than anything because he was having dreams. As he was sleeping at night, he was having these dreams of superiority, an agricultural dream and an astronomical dream. Dreams that all of his brothers would gather around him. And even the second dream that his mother and his father, the whole family, would gather around him and bow down to him. So here these brothers are looking at Joseph with this beautiful cloak that his father gave him as a symbol of favoritism. And now they're hearing this, this son of their father say, one day, I'm dreaming this, twice, you all are going to bow down to me. He's 17 years old. Well, of course, as we saw last week, the hatred just mounts up. And now, that internal hatred, that hatred of the heart, that inward murder, we could say, shows itself in the external murderous actions of Joseph's brothers. And I just want to pause on this for a moment as we consider the relationship between these two passages. Last week, we have hatred. We have a window into the heart of the brothers. This week, we get murderous acts. We get actions. Last week, we had emotions. This week, we have Actions And this reminds us, as we pause for a moment and just consider the context, the, the, the putting together of these two passages, we are reminded that sin is a matter of the heart. We've already sinned in our hearts long before we do anything. Long before our hands move, our eyes move, our feet 
move. We've already sinned. Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22, Jesus says this. And Jesus had a lot to say about this, particularly because he was dealing with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders who were like whitewashed tombs, Jesus would say. Outwardly, they did everything right. They followed It seemed the law perfectly. Outwardly, externally, they were spotless. But inwardly, they were nasty, disgusting, like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones, is what Jesus calls them. But he says this in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But then listen to Jesus expressing his authority as the son of God, as the one greater than Moses, as the embodiment and fulfillment of the law itself. Jesus says this, but I say to you that everyone who is angry, language of emotions, language of the heart, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The inference we make there is that the murder happens in the heart and that from God's perspective, when murder has happened in the heart, murder has actually happened. Even if the person you've murdered is still walking around breathing. 1 John 3.15 makes the same point. Listen to this language. Everyone who hates His brother is a murderer, a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see that? The language of hatred, the language of anger. It's the language of the heart. It's unseen. It's emotional in nature. It's in the will. No act, just the heart. This relationship between sin and the heart and between heart and action raises some questions for us. So before we jump into our text this morning, I just want to ask three questions of all of us. Just put our hearts there before our own eyes and examine our hearts. And here's three questions to consider as we get underway this morning. The first is this, what have you allowed into your heart? We're, we're sitting here this morning and we're hearing these praises. We're worshiping the Lord. We're praying to the Lord. We're reading his word. We're hearing preaching. And right now, under the sound of my voice, there are untold things in our hearts. Things that no one sitting next to you even knows about. So what have you allowed into your heart? Guard your heart, the writer of Proverbs says. For out of it flow all the issues of life. The heart. And we have all kinds of things. This very moment in our hearts. Here's a second question to consider. Are you sure? Are you really sure that what you've allowed into your heart won't turn into action? You see, oftentimes that's why we let things in our hearts stay and fester. Is because the great deceiver, the liar, Satan, is a tempter. And he tempts us to believe that as long as it's deep down in the heart, here and there, a thought flittering, it won't really ever amount to anything. It won't turn into action. It won't result in harm to anyone else. That's a, that's a lie. 
Are you sure that the anger, the rage, the hatred, the contempt, the pride, the disdain, the envy, the lust, the greed that's in your heart this very moment won't turn into all sorts of evil that will destroy your family and destroy your life. Just give it a couple decades. Is that where you're headed? This is, a, this is an opportunity this morning as we consider these brothers to get before the Lord and to repent and to search your own heart before him in his presence. And finally, are you being honest about your sin and thus your need for a savior? You may be here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're listening to the message of the Bible and you're kind of, you're skeptical and you wonder how it all, how it all works. And, but one thing you might be certain of is that you're really pretty good that you're actually a pretty good person. And, and it's, it's funny, when you hear these, these uh, interviews on the streets, one of the first things that people will say is, I haven't murdered anyone. And it's interesting people even say that because a, a moral relativist, someone who doesn't believe in an absolute God, really should not think there's anything wrong at all with even murdering someone. If we're all just evolved apes, what does it matter? We see that happen on National Geographic all the time. But they recognize that murder is intrinsically evil. And therefore they are responsible to a lawgiver. But they say, you might be saying, I've never murdered anyone. And I want to tell you this morning that one day you will stand before the Lord and you will have murdered far more people than you even imagine. Because murder is a matter of the heart. And so a text like this situated in a passage, a larger section like this, should remind us that we are, in fact, murderers, and therefore we do, in fact, need a Savior. And so a text like this exposes the heart, and it drives us to the Christ who can purify our hearts and cleanse us before the eyes of God. So we run to Christ. The title for the sermon this morning is enslaved in Egypt. And the reason I've entitled it this is because this is really the end result of the story. Look at verse 28. I'll show you this quickly. Verse 28. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So he is sold Taken to Egypt. And then verse 36, which is the final verse of our passage for today. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So enslaved in Egypt. That's what we're going to look at today. If you would, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 37, verses 12 to 36. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron 
and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Verse 18. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You can go ahead and be seated. This is God's word, and what an incredible story. What what an amazing story, the story of Joseph. Is. And here we really have the pivot point. This is where things get underway. Of course, it's, uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to us that next week we, we leave the Joseph story for a time, at least seemingly uh, all part of the same network of, of stories. But we go to look at uh, an incident in the life of, or a series of incidents in the life of, of Judah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Father, we are utterly dependent on you today to show us what is here in your word. And Father, we know that this preaching will not be perfect anywhere near it, and this hearing 
of preaching will not be perfect anywhere near it. But Father, we know that you are gracious and kind. That in our finitude, in our weakness, you do mighty things. And we ask you, Father, to come this morning and use your word in our hearts. We pray that you would bring the grace of repentance, that you would bring the grace of faith, that you would transform hearts, that you would root out sin, that you would instill hope and encouragement, that you would just work, Father, in ways that we don't know. We don't know what's going on in each other's lives at the deepest level. Father, our hearts are a network of all kinds of things, Lord, and you see all, you know all, and so God, just work, we ask, through your word. We know you will. We trust you in this. We trust in the power of your word. So we come now asking you to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So three things to consider this morning as we go through this latter part of Genesis 37. First, the assignment. Second, the atrocity. And then finally, the aftermath. So let's go first and look at the assignment. And I want to read these verses. So look at verses 12 to 17. Let's put that back in view. Verses 12 to 17. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Last week, we discussed the various divisions that existed in this family. Uh, This is a divided family, if there ever was one. This family has many divisions, but there are four major categories, we would say, among, among the sons of Jacob, because there are four mothers. We have four different mothers Four different wives of Jacob, four different mothers of these sons. And so therefore, we've got these four separate categories. The mothers are Leah, Zilpah, Rachel, and Bilhah. And you can go back and listen to previous sermons about how that came about. That's quite a story in and of itself. And we touched on that at the beginning of last week, if you want to review that. But four mothers, four categories. But as we saw last week... Those divisions are overpowered by one greater division. There's Joseph, and then there is everyone else. And as I said before, of course, Benjamin at this point is excluded from this. It's unclear how old he is, but he's quite small. He's not really part of the the adult-ish brothers. Joseph's the youngest, and he's 17. So we have Joseph on one side, and we have all of the other brothers on the other side. Joseph is the favorite son, and his mother, Rachel, was the favorite wife. So there is Joseph and dad. Catch that. There's Joseph and dad on one side of this dividing line, and Joseph's brothers on the other side. 
It's not just Joseph and the brothers. It's Joseph with dad and the brothers. And we get a further hint of this division here. What do we have at the beginning of this passage? The brothers are off pasturing the flock. And where is Joseph? He's not with the brothers pasturing the flock. He's with his father. Joseph and dad at home. All the other brothers out working. But for some reason, Jacob, or Israel, as his name was changed, his name was changed to Israel by the Lord, Jacob feels that it is necessary to check on his sons and his flocks. And it's unclear why exactly he thinks that uh, there is need to check on them. It's quite a distance away. Five days journey, perhaps, a distance from, from him to his sons. Maybe it's because they are pasturing near Shechem. Maybe he knows that they're pasturing in that area. And you will remember weeks ago we talked about something that happened in Shechem. This evil uh, rape of uh, Dina, one of Jacob's daughters. And we read how the two sons, the two brothers of Dina and the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi how they tricked the population and they murdered all of the males in the city. And you can go back and look at that. But maybe the reason Jacob sends his son Joseph to check on his brothers is because they are pastoring so far away, or maybe it is because they are pastoring near Shechem. But for whatever reason, he sends his son Joseph on an errand. He gives him an assignment to accomplish. Joseph is to travel... Several days north from Hebron to Shechem, where he is to check on the well-being of his brothers and his father's flock, and then report back to his father. And we get a little bit more of a hint of the closeness between father and son in Joseph's respectful and obedient response. As Jacob tells Joseph what to do, or he goes to give him a command, what does Joseph say? He says, here I am. This is the same kind of language that we found Back in Genesis 22, when the Lord comes to Abraham and, and says, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham responds, here I am. It is, it is the language of being under the voice of another. The Lord speaks, and Abraham is under the voice of the Lord. He's attentive to God. He res- he's responsive, we talked about then. He's responsive to the voice of God. And that's what we see here with this son. He is respectful and obedient, responsive To the voice of his father. Here I am, dad. What do you need me to do? And then in verse 14, he goes to Shechem as his father instructed him. Now, this is interesting. We don't know how much Jacob understood the hostility that existed between the brothers. Jacob seems oblivious, really. And we knew back, we remember back with Dina, how passive he was in that whole affair. He seems to be wrapped up in other things. He's not very attentive to what's going on on the ground. And so we don't get the impression that Jacob suspects that there really is any animosity that could result in any harm to his son, Joseph. However, we know that is not the case with Joseph. Why? Because we read last week that they could not even speak, the brothers could not even speak to Joseph peacefully. So Everything they say to him is harsh. Every time they speak to him, it is severe. There's no brotherly love. There's no brotherly warmth in their discourse with their brother, 
Joseph. All biting hatred. So Joseph, at the very least, knows what his brothers think of him and how his brothers feel towards him. And yet, we see his obedience. In the face of this, despite this, he listens to his father and he goes to his brothers. Now, it's interesting because commentators will debate and argue, and many that I really respect will debate and argue whether or not Joseph is presented as a bad figure or a good figure in the narrative. And one of the reasons that's so important is because for a long time, theologians have seen in Joseph a type of Christ. That he is seen as kind of like, much like Daniel, this kind of spotless character that just seems to hover over the pages of Scripture. Unlike David or, or Moses or Noah, where you get sort of the rawness of it. With Joseph, he seems to kind of hover over the pages of Scripture as this kind of perfect, gleaming example of righteousness. We get the same with Daniel. And so people debate whether or not Joseph is meant to, to be, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Scripture, meant to be a type of Christ. He saves the brothers. He's the one through whom the nations come and get food. And we'll talk about all of that as we go on. But an important question in all of that discussion is whether or not the narrative portrays Joseph as, as righteous or, or unrighteous in some ways. And I tend to see the narrative portraying him as Righteous. I don't see a tattletale. I don't see an arrogant Joseph. I simply see someone who is close with his father, obedient to his father, and who is reporting what he's dreaming, what he has heard. But there's debate on that, not that it's all that important. But I just want us to see here the obedient response, even in the face of great danger of Joseph, depicted as the obedient son. However, when Joseph gets to Shechem, his brothers are nowhere to be found. Why are his brothers not there? He's looking around. This 17-year-old teenager is just wandering around in the field looking for his brothers. And it's at this moment, mysteriously, that an unidentified man approaches Joseph. Who is this guy? You know, when you're reading through narratives like this in Scripture and you just get a man is there, happens to be there, happens to know where his brothers are and directs, his, directs him to his brothers. Who is this guy? It even says that the man finds him. Uses the verb to find. The man finds him, asks what he's looking for and directs him to his brothers. So who is this person and does it even matter? Well, some would say it really doesn't matter. It's just some random person. It's just someone who's meant to, to bring the narrative forward. But I think that by referring to this person as simply ish, the Hebrew word for man, ish, a man came to him, it immediately reminds the reader, it should immediately remind the reader of this mysterious ish that just came out of nowhere and wrestled with Jacob. Do you remember that? And a man came, an ish. It's the last time we got this language, a man. And here we have a man who comes to Joseph, this vulnerable teenager who's lost just wandering around, can't find his brothers. Is it the Lord? Is it an angel? It's unclear. But it seems to be too mysterious to see it as just an irrelevancy. 
So whoever he is, this individual does something also that is interesting. He directs Joseph to Dothan. Now, once again, you read through this and you think, okay, man, Dothan, is just keep going. But what is significant about Dothan? Well, the, the name of the town Dothan only appears in two places in the whole Bible. Two places. And the person who's reading the Bible now as it's, as it's together should recognize this relationship. The other place is in 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha is in a, an area. And the king of Syria sends a group, an army, a small contingent, a small force to surround this place where Elisha is. And Elisha's servant gets up in the morning and he comes out or gets up and he comes out of his house. And he looks out and he sees this army of Syrians and he's deathly afraid. And he tells Elisha, Elisha comes out and Elisha prays to the Lord and asks the Lord to open. You know, do you remember this story? Asks the Lord to open his eyes so that he can see. He says to him, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The Lord opens his eyes and he sees flaming chariots and an army of divine angels, of angels, not divine beings, but angels sent from God who are encircling that area around the army of the Syrians. So the mysterious man and the mention of Dothan are together, I think, meant to remind the reader of God's presence. That we are here meant to, meant to see this word man. And we are here meant to read this, this place, Dothan. And meant to see that God is here present. That God is in control. And here's what we need to see. That God is in control of what Joseph is about to walk into. We'll see. As we read, we'll see again in a moment what he is about to walk into. So what does this tell us by way of implication for us, for the believer? We never walk into any situation. And we could give many verses to support this. But I want to draw this out of what we see here. We never walk into any situation, no matter how hard, no matter how dangerous, without the Lord's presence and control. Never There is no valley of the shadow of death where the Lord is not encamped with his people. There's no test you're waiting to hear back on. There's no loss of a loved one. No great tragedy that could befall you as you stand on the brink of the next day of life. There's absolutely nothing that could come against you, child of God, in which God is not going to be entirely in control and present. So what does Joseph walk into? And that leads us to our second point, and that is the atrocity. So we've seen the assignment, now we come to the atrocity. Look with me at verses 18 to 28. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see 
what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. I'm sure they took much delight in that part. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. What we have here is Murder, in a sense, as we've talked about, or at least definitely intended murder. Murder, kidnapping, enslavement, human trafficking, and all of this against their brother. As Judah says, their own flesh, their own flesh and blood. As the brothers see Joseph coming, they start conspiring. And what's interesting about this is that the hatred and the murderous intentions are like right on the surface of their hearts. It's not one of those things where uh, they have to pull deep for it. He's coming and immediately it's like right there on the surface of the heart just lifts right up off the top. Let's kill him. Let's kill this dreamer, this brother of ours. We see the mindset of the pack pack of wild animals they are portrayed. In fact, Joseph was devoured by wild animals. These wild, beastly men. Verses 19 to 20. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now it's very interesting here to see what provokes these brothers. It's not, oh, look at Joseph. There he comes with this nice robe. We know they don't like the robe. We know that they don't like the fact that their father loves him more. And the robe is a symbol of that. But what is the reason in the text? What is the reason why they want to murder him now? What does it say? The answer is the dreams. It is the dreams that provoke them to this. And where do the dreams come from? The Lord. Not from Joseph's own imagination. Joseph did not sort of earn this provocation. It was God who brought these dreams to Joseph. In other words, what I want you to see is that these brothers are fighting against none other than the living God. In trying to kill Joseph, they are trying to kill the plan of God. They have no regard for the election of God, the grace of God. They've been raised in this family of promise. They are fourth generation. 
fourth generation, imbued with the the promises, the grand scope of the promises, the, the wonderful promises that God first brought to Abraham years and years ago, the faithfulness to their grandfather Isaac, and how they've seen God work in the life of their father Jacob, and even in their own lives. They've seen the prosperity. They've seen the piety in the family in some ways. But here they wage war in their hearts and in their deeds against the electing grace of God. And you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Esau. Remember when Esau came in, he had sold his birthright. He saw it as nothing. And remember, he comes in and he get, goes to get the blessing. Jacob has already tricked their father to take the blessing. And there's Esau holding out his hands. And instead of seeing in this the workings of God, even though his brother had done this, this deceptive, wicked thing, and even though his brother had, had offended him in this way, to, to throw up his hands to God and say, God, you are sovereign. You are in control. It is your plan. No, we don't see that. We see a desire to now kill the one who is blessed. Esau is ready to kill the seed through Jacob. We see the same kind of attitude here. And I think this teaches us that worldliness is what we have here is worldliness. Worldliness breeds contempt for God's uncomfortable providence. And here's what I mean by that. It is only when we are walking in light of the life to come. It is only when we are walking in the midst of heavenly realities that we are able to experience providence that marginalizes us and lifts up someone else. It's only in the midst of walking with the Lord that we are able to receive the blows of uncomfortable providence in a meek way before the Lord. When we are consumed with the world and not God's promises and not his word, all of God's providential blows to our comfort are wounds. And we are not happy with it. We become angry. We become like Esau and like these brothers. We fight against the will of God. And in the midst of all of this conspiring, Joseph has two advocates. And I put those in quotation marks. Two supposed advocates, it seems. The first is Reuben, and he is really the only true advocate of the story. Reuben is singled out as the one brother who did not want to harm Joseph. He persuades his brothers to throw Joseph into a pit rather than murder him. They're ready to to crack him over the skull with a rock or Simeon and Levi maybe going for the swords because they're used to that. And... Reuben stops them. He persuades his brothers to throw Joseph into a pit rather than murder him. And his ultimate intentions, we are told, are to later rescue his brother from the pit and return him to his father. Whatever. The brothers agree. And when Joseph arrives, they strip him of his special robe and throw him into a pit with no water to starve to death. Just forget he's there. He's not getting out. He'll die there. The second advocate is Judah. Once again, advocate. After the brothers throw him into the pit, they callously sit down to eat. Joseph is left. Look at the picture. Joseph is left. Their 17-year-old brother is left without food or water to starve to death. And they sit down to have a meal. 
and they probably, more than likely, are eating some of the food that Joseph brought with him to meet his brothers. Give me that food. And they've thrown him into this pit. Then something interesting happens. A caravan of Arabian traders happen to pass by. These are distant relatives through Ishmael and Keturah's sons. And it's at this point that Judah makes a proposal that saves Joseph's life. He says, let's not kill him. Let's not kill our brother. Let's sell him to these traders. You see, these guys are coming through. Let's take him out of that pit. Let's sell him to them. And we'll make a profit. After all, he is our brother. I mean, come on. He's our flesh. So yes, there are two advocates. But when we look a little deeper, we realize that the motives of these two brothers are less than pure. Let's look at each of them. Reuben we know is not only the oldest son of Jacob, but he is also the discredited son. Won't get into detail about what he did, but you will remember that he took to himself Bilhah, which is one of Jacob's, his father's wives. So he is the discredited son. He is also the oldest son. So he's responsible for the sons as a whole, especially the youngest The oldest son is especially responsible for the youngest. So he has something big to lose. And this is an opportunity to regain favor with his father. Can you imagine Reuben coming back to his father with son? Say, here's here's Joseph, dad. And by the way, I'm really sorry about what happened with Bilhah. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to work. But, But perhaps that's what's going on in his mind. He, he wants to win the favor of his father. What about Judah? Well, Judah is interested in material gain. Look at the language here. Verse 26. What profit? This is a word that means that, that has the connotation throughout the, the Hebrew Bible of, of gain, of, of gain that, that one gets unjustly. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? We're not going to gain anything by leaving him in this pit. But if we sell him, we'll get some money. So we look at these brothers a little more closely. We see they're just wrapped in with all of the others. And as we read this story, it really is an atrocity. This is deep wickedness and cruelty. Consider some of its layers. As we think about what these brothers are doing, just consider some of the layers. They do this to Joseph as a teenager. As I've said before, he's not a grown man. He's still, in many ways, a child. You know, when you list in Exodus, when they give listings of age categories, one age category is 5 to 20. You can go back and look at that in Exodus, 5 to 20. Which means that there is a sense in which, in the Jewish mind, that After 20, you enter into kind of a new state of real adulthood. Now, we know that that there are ways of viewing teenagers in in the Bible and and that that's a a move towards adulthood, but but it's 5 to 20. Joseph is still three years shy of this boundary marker. He's their younger brother. It is their job to protect him, not to destroy him. And that is what they do. Or so it seems. They move from slaying to starving to selling. This doesn't get any better. 
First, they're going to just slaughter him. And then they say, we're just going to leave him to die in this pit. And then they just sell him off into slavery. They casually sit to enjoy a meal while he begs for his life. Later, we will read in chapter 42, verse 21. We saw the distress of his soul. So the brothers, they go to Egypt. And I won't get too much into that where the story goes. But Joseph is elevated to pretty much the most powerful man in Egypt under Pharaoh. And they come and they want food. And, and Joseph is, is discerning what's going on in the, inner dyna- in the dynamics of the family. And he's putting them to the test. And they're getting distressed with everything that's happening. And they say, we saw the distress of his soul. Speaking of Joseph, they think that God is paying them back for what they did to Joseph all those years ago. And they say, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. He's begging for his life, calling out their names, and they're eating their lunch. They do this against their teenage brother. They do this against God, as I've already said before, the dreams, but they also do this against their own father. They know how much Jacob loves Joseph. And as much as they might hate that, as much as they might resent that favoritism, as much as they might hate Joseph, surely you would think that they love their father enough not to destroy the one thing he holds most precious. That's not the case. They do it anyway. And here's what I think is so awful. They let their father think two things. They let their father think that he was eaten alive by a wild animal. Eaten alive by a wild beast. Torn apart by a lion or something. And they let their father, listen to this, believe that if only I had not sent him on that trip, He would not have died. If only I would not have sent him out there, he would not have been torn up by wild beasts. Any father in this situation would feel the weight of that. And they let his heart get eat up with that sorrow and inevitable guilt. That leads us to our final point this morning, and that is the aftermath. Look at verses 29 to 36. We've seen the assignment We've seen the atrocity itself. And now we have the aftermath. What happens afterwards? Verses 29 to 36, as we finish up this morning. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons And all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. I want to give you two words to unpack these verses as we bring this to a close. Two words, horrible 
and hopeful. The aftermath of this atrocity is both horrible and hopeful. We have to see that as it moves us forward in Genesis. First, horrible. It is horrible because of the sin and the sorrow. We see the sin piling up even further in these verses. When Reuben returns and realizes Joseph is gone, he immediately enters into a state of distress. But very quickly, he, along with the rest of his brothers, together plot their cover-up, their deception. They hide their wicked deed by lying to their father. They dip Joseph's special robe in goat's blood and bring it to Jacob. Verse 32. This we have found. Lie. Lie. This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. They don't even, they can't even say our brother. It's the conscience. You see, the conscience is something that God has put into every person. It afflicts us when we do evil. The conscience. They can't even say our brother. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. One quick note I want to make here is, do you notice what is going on here with Jacob? This is, this is intriguing. His sons are deceiving him by means of the blood of a goat. Do you remember when Jacob deceived his father Isaac by means of the fur of a goat? The writer is trying to point us to this principle that we have seen already. And that is that we reap what we sow. We may say in our minds, certainly Jacob did not deserve this. I mean, come on. But here's the thing. All of our actions in this life matter. There's not a single day in which we can just take a vacation from willing rightly. From choosing rightly. From doing rightly. Because our actions matter in this life. Every time we point our eyes in this direction or that, it matters. The words we say matter. The way we decide to spend our time matters. And though the Lord forgives all our iniquities through Christ, there are consequences for our sin. And many of us this very morning are living with the consequences of our sin. We cry out to God. We say, God, have mercy on me. Help me. And he does. He is so merciful and gracious. But he expects us. He calls us to now move forward with that wisdom. Saying, no more. No more. Sin destroys our lives. And sometimes that destruction does not show up for many years. And here we see. He's reaping what he sowed. But they are foolishly unprepared for the depth of sorrow that they will meet. Jacob's heart is torn to pieces. It says that he refuses to be comforted. And he says that his mourning will go until his death. Verse 35. No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Do you notice that? You notice what he says though? I will go down to my son mourning. And though we don't get a clear understanding of the afterlife and Sheol here simply meaning the grave, normally meaning the grave, death. But here we get a flicker 
of that notion of the afterlife, of the continuity of life after death. And here we read that he will go down to his son. Mourning. He expects to see his son again, even though he will not see him in this life, he thinks. 2 Samuel 12, 23. This is what David says about the death of his son. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? David understood that that he had to move on with his life. Yes, he had lost his son, but he had to move on with his life. But he says this, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. There is comfort here for those of you who have lost a child. There is comfort here in knowing that there is life after death. And through Christ, you will go to them. You will see them again. And Jacob has only that hope because in his mind, his son, his favorite son, has been devoured alive by a wild animal. The brothers have brought a perpetual state of unhappiness to their household. They have thinking that they were doing something that would make life better for them. They have destroyed their household. Their father, the patriarch, the head of the home, is now in a perpetual state of mourning. This is not a happy home. This is not a great environment. These are not happy days. And I think we must extract from this that we are sometimes, hear this, this is so important, we are sometimes deceived into thinking that our sins will make things better. If only we can get rid of Joseph, life will just be better. Our sins never make things better. Sin never makes things better. In the end, it destroys. It brings death. I said before that it was horrible, but it's also hopeful. And the hope comes at the very end. The very last verse with the reminder that Joseph is still alive. Look at verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The traders just happened to be passing by, right? They just happened to be there. And now Joseph just happens to be sold to a high-profile Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, right? Just like all those things just happen to happen in your life. There is a sovereign king who guides every single step of our lives. Joseph is on the move. But even more, I want you to see this morning, God is on the move. He's always on the move. Whatever you're facing. Psalm 105, which Mark read earlier. I'll close with this. Psalm 105, 16 to 17 Listen to this language about Joseph being in Egypt. So important. When he summoned a famine on the land, this is God. When God summoned a famine, why was the famine there? Because God sent it. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, listen to this. He, God, had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So here's the question. Why is Joseph 
Why is poor 17-year-old Joseph in Egypt? Because God Almighty sent him there. Yes, on one level, it is because of the wicked cruelty of his brothers. But far more significant for this story and far more significant for each and every one of our lives is this fact, God sent him to Egypt. There will be many times in life when we can't understand what God is doing. But rest assured, child of God, that he is doing something and we can trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing story of your providence as we know what happens later in the story. Of your grace that you would work graciously, that that you would use brothers like this, even Judah, the the great ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. These, these wicked men, these very much like us men, that you would use them to accomplish your purposes to bring the nations to your son. Father, we are so amazed at your providence and your grace. We are so amazed that you're in control. And Lord, we pray that we would apply the truths of this text to our lives, that we would see all that is here, Lord, in the coming week as we discuss it in group and as we think through it, meditate on it, talk about it with our families, Lord, that you would massage its truth into our hearts. Would, would we not leave this text unchanged, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.